Yeah, hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Beyond Eight Figures. You know I enjoy talking about the types of journeys we as entrepreneurs can take on. So here's a question for you. If you're a successful entrepreneur and you actually exit your business and you don't create another business and you become an investor in other entrepreneurs' efforts, are you still an entrepreneur? Well, today's guest will walk in, talk a little bit about what they don't think they're an entrepreneur anymore, even though I think they are. But still, back to the point, it's going to be interesting listening to their thinking about where they are on their journey as they consider themselves as an investor. We'll also talk a little bit about how the value of his relationship with his co-founder that was built from working previous to the company they had built together and sold after being one of the most successful UK-based music players of the past few decades, Audio Network. It'll be interesting to kind of dive into what made that so impactful to him. And also what I find really interesting and we'll go more into is how they decided and what they did with the investment when they decided they had reached as far as they believed they could get, but they realized or they believed there was more room for their growth, but they took on external private equity to facilitate their growth. And they really did have a lot of growth after taking on this money. So what was their reasoning dives into pluses, minuses, and really the type of team he was able to then bring on that senior level. So it's going to be really interesting as some of you I know are out there thinking about what to do with your growth and where to go. So please join me in welcoming Robert Hurst, the co-founder and CEO of Audio Network, and now more than just an investor. Hey, Robert. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm Really excited to have someone who's just down the coast from me here in Spain, down in Marbella. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting us and uh, look forward to uh, telling you the story and any lessons that I've learned on the journey. Well, that is going to be pretty cool because you really have, as I was just sharing with the audience, you built something very, very cool. And now you're on to even cooler things that I think the audience will get a really big kick and especially how you're thinking around this. So before... I mumble on too much. Why don't you uh, tell us how you see yourself as an entrepreneur these days? I see myself probably as an ex-entrepreneur because I think having done this one journey for 20 years, uh, during which time you had to reinvent yourself every two or three years as a business kept on growing at 30 40% every year for 20 years, meant every time you were bringing on a new team, training them up, handing over your current responsibilities so that you could step on to the next challenge and stage of growth of the business. I feel that I've probably had about 10 different roles over that 20 years. And now I can bring that benefit to some of the investments that I make and help some of the people avoid making many of the mistakes that they made in the past that that we made on the journey. So, you know, this is something because I've had conversations in the past as an investor now, I take it that's what you see yourself as these days? Yeah, I make a small number of investments, but the problem really is 
if you're investing in private companies, it's very time consuming. So I'm very selective about which investments I take and those that I do take in. There's a huge difference between being the CEO and founder of a business and being an investor. Because as an investor, you dip in and you dip out. It's kind of like being a consultant in that you're there. You can be a mentor, you can be a coach. But the reality is the person on the ground is the one who's taking all the flack every single day. I dabble in an investor and I do like the fact that, you know, I always joke, it's sort of like I miss babies because I have three kids who are now teenagers in their own lovely way. I miss babies, but it is so nice to be able to hand them back. And businesses sometimes feel like that in the new businesses where you're like, wow, this is so cool. They're so nice. Ooh, yeah. Usually hands other people's babies back full of sugar, having a very exciting weekend. And then you can go out and have a relaxing dinner and the parents go, oh, no, the favorite uncle. Oh, <laughs> oh no, the investor just came in and gave everyone sugar. <laughs> Absolutely. Brilliant. I like that. Do you find, though, that your understanding of what entrepreneurs are going through that you invest in do you find that you know you have a better understanding of where they are and sort of also that lovely what's going to be happening to them it kind of depends i think entrepreneurs come in all shapes and sizes i was lucky in that i've always worked with either creative or tech businesses and as creatives people think in a different way to the way that an ordinary person does and i think a lot of entrepreneurs have that inside them that creativity and that drive and it's a matter of just channeling that energy into something that can take little steps towards the big journey some people are visionaries and think of the great long term other people are more operational and think about the short term i think as an entrepreneur you need to think about both and naturally one person will have a tendency to think one way but that's where teams come in. I think when certainly when I'm investing or the experience I had of running a business, it's never about one individual. You might have one individual who might be the figurehead or the front of the company. But the reality is it's about a team of people with complementary skills. And I think if you can assemble a great team of people around you, you become very, very investable. And I think that's advice I would give anybody who's at that stage of transitioning from being a micro business to being a reasonable size business. We managed to keep going for 13 years before we got to the stage where we had to bring on board a external private equity investor simply because we didn't know how to take a business further forwards than we'd already managed to take it. And they helped us really put in the systems, the processes, the controls, the procedures, and also coached us to actually step back and not be part of the day-to-day -day management team. So when we ultimately got an exit five years later, we were able to choose whether we wanted to stay with the business or whether we wanted to exit rather than being tied to a business that so you were no longer the people in charge of the short-term and the long-term destination of that business. So you were able to bypass the golden handcuffs, which is always <laughs> the fun part of it. I think I had, yeah, I mean, technically I had three years, but it was reality was about a year. After about a year, I was able to come over to Marbella, actually. Uh, we came on holiday and stayed over here. And I've managed to do the occasional bit that I got called into remotely rather than being hands-on with the business. So I was very fortunate. But we had a great management team around us, brought people in to fill the gaps where we didn't have the skills ourselves. Well, that's interesting because you say you were sort of 13 years under your own sort of before you then brought in your private equity partner who then helped you put in the systems. What kind of caused that situation, that sort of inflection point to kind of transition to them bringing in outside equity? 
Well, I think we were very lucky in the both myself and my business partner both had completely complementary skills. He'd spent a decade running his own small businesses, building them up to medium-sized businesses. His last business he sold to a company that I ended up joining as well. Whilst he was going through that 10-year period mastering his craft and learning how to run a micro-business, I'd been working with multinational corporations in operational roles, running small divisions of those businesses. So I'd learn how to run businesses and take them to a certain size within the corporate discipline. So I was able to take the business far, far further than I guess most entrepreneurs could being hands-on themselves because I'd had that big company experience, but also coming from a family background that was entrepreneurial and my business partner also having run small businesses, we were able to take a small business, a bootstrap startup, turn it into a small, profitable small business, turn it into a medium-sized business. But that, once it started being too big to personally manage when we had maybe... 100 employees, maybe about 600 composers. We couldn't actually physically keep track of all the different things that were going on around the organization. We also had offices in about four or five different countries around the world at the time. That was physically too much for one person to do. So it was that delegated responsibility where you could no longer be hands-on supervisory, even though you had managers that we'd trained up to run the business. Uh, bringing on board a private equity company, they said, actually, we need to bring on board a CEO, we need to bring on board a CFO, we need to bring on a CIO, each of which had far better skills in the individual disciplines than we could possibly bring to the table ourselves. So that was kind of a strange situation in handing over. But it's something that you need to do when the business or you need to do it probably two or three years before the business gets to that stage rather than leaving it till too late because by that time the business can't do it and and we were very lucky we had the good people around us and we knew in our souls actually when the time was right and uh, managed to find a very good private equity we knocked on probably about 30 40 doors of private equity companies till we found one where they really understood creative businesses and were able to help us transition without losing the culture of the business. Covered a lot in there. Maybe one quick thing, and then I would love to talk a little bit about you and your partner. Why private equity versus if you were having that type of growth and during that time period, because you know I've worked like TuneCore and other online musical services, Spotify early days. Why not venture capital. Why did you go private equity or was it just the structure of the business? In the early days, we did have an offer of venture capital when we were setting up the business because we were both employed at a music company before. We resigned from our jobs to focus full-time on driving the business forwards. And all of that was just before 9-11. We actually had an offer on the table a couple of days before 9-11. As soon as 9-11 happened, bang, all the things that we said we weren't going to accept in the contract, we were saying, okay, we'll accept them now. And of course, they said, I'm sorry, the world's changed, which for us actually was the best possible thing because it meant we learned how to run a real business as a bootstrap business. And it also meant that um, we ended up securing our financing from our 
musicians and composers, which always meant that they were the heart of our business rather than simply being suppliers into the business. They were also shareholders in the business. And I think there's about 13 of them who actually said, we're going to lock ourselves away in our studio. We're going to record for you for the next 12 months. Don't worry about cash. We'll just take some penny shares. And we explained to them that those penny shares might be worth a penny. And they ended up being worth with dividends and sector was probably worth about 13 pounds a share. So they made a good investment at a penny a share. But we were eternally grateful to them because as a bootstrap business after 9-11, the venture capital market just shut down completely. We then managed to raise some angel finance to see us through a year later. And they drip fed money through for the first four or five years as a bootstrap business until we got to profitability, by which point from year five onwards, we were profitable, we were throwing off cash, we were even paying dividends. We were in a situation where we didn't need more venture capital. What we needed was smart equity rather than just money. So that was why we brought the private equity company on board. There was actually no new money invested in the company. It just gave an exit route for some of the early angel investors who were very happy to cash out at that time after being in there for 13 years. And the private equity company came on board and brought the smart ability to help manage the two founders, basically, and help us recruit a C-level team, which ended up being a mix of both people who'd grown internally and also some external skills that we needed to bring into that mix. No, that is very cool. And for many companies, it's sort of this idea of what's bootstrap, what's venture-backed, angel, private equity. It's blurring a little bit, but it's still confusing, I think. And you know, listening to how your experience. Yeah, I remember right after 9-11 was the second time I went from being a paper millionaire to a zero millionaire. <laughs> You know, zero, not a non-millionaire is a better term, um, just an option. So that was the last time I ever took options <laughs> on that type of situation. So yeah, I remember those days. That was uh, an interesting time. You can't predict when those things happen. You know, something like 9-11, we would like sitting there building our database, getting the first few tracks out there. And suddenly you switched on the news and you went, oh my God, the world's changed. And we had no idea the bottom would completely fall out of the venture capital market for probably about 12 months afterwards, during which time we needed the cash to survive. Yeah, because I was in New York City. That, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker, and I was there that day. So yeah, I remember completely like before and after, or literally from like that morning before and then after just changed. You talked about your experience sort of having worked within larger organizations, but taking groups within them and scaling them and growing them within that framework, but then having family business experience. So you understood sort of that scrappiness. You talked about your business partner sort of being out there working in small businesses and learning sort of the ins and outs. It's not that easy to have a really strong partnership. And then over the time period where you guys did, that's a good long time. How did you decide to do something together? And then maybe share a little bit of how you guys were able to build that strength over that period of time. We both worked together at the same company. His company had just been acquired just before I joined. And I always say to him, you're lucky I didn't join at the time because you wouldn't have been paid the same amount of money had I been there. But we were both 20 years younger than any of the other board members. So the two of us kind of hit it off together. We looked at the business. We looked at all sorts of things that we wanted to do with the business as employees without thinking of going out and going on our own to do something. There was a couple of projects that we were really keen on and we thought 
these are ways that the music industry is going to change. In order to address those markets, you need to realize that the old processes of having separate distributors in different countries around the world was going to change with the internet. Distribution was going to change. In those days, you still had CDs. You know, when we first started the business, we used to press 2,000 copies of every CD. We used to physically put them in the post and ship them out to broadcasters and filmmakers around the world. All that's changed. You know, all of that now is a digital process. So we anticipated a whole series of changes taking place. We went to our board and probably spent a year trying to explain to our board how we saw the markets changing and opportunities to exploit. We said there were things in our business which we wouldn't want. We'd prefer to sell them in order to buy something to invest the money in the things where we saw future value being created. The group that we belonged to had other operations apart from music. We were only the directors of the music division. And for one reason or another, they said, no, we're not able to fund this. We're not able to go with it. So Andrew and I said, well, we've been here two years. I'm not quite sure what you want us to do now because we sorted out the day-to-day operations. What's the point of us being here? You paying us a larger salary. You may as well pay somebody a lower salary and have somebody just doing a day-to-day manager role rather than actually taking the business forwards. And they actually said, look, if you really believe this can work, then we're happy for you to leave as long as you do a smooth handover. So we did like a nine-month handover. It was a very civilized exit. We gave them a option to invest in the business one year later. That option expired because after one year, we'd hardly made any progress at all because like most startups, it takes so long to get the thing going. And they looked at the business and they said, we're still not quite sure about it. We aren't really sure. And we said, well, we only need 100 grand's worth of financing. But if you don't want to do it, then that's fine. And that's the point when we were then free to go and find our own external financing, go as an independent. We were very lucky because the two years worth of market research and everything else that we did was paid for by our previous employer. And our previous employer was very generous in terms of allowing us to spend as much time as we're spending in it during that six-month handover period while still getting a salary, which was so important to have some income coming in because it's not easy running a business for six, 12 months before you get to an investable stage where you can start even getting some seed finance into the business. But yeah, we worked together for two years, so we knew each other really, really well. And we knew that between the two of us, we had totally complementary skills. I had the finance, the commercial, the sales, uh, big corporate sales, B2B background, understood intellectual property rights. Andrew was a music producer, understand music publishing, had very good relationships with his composers. But I think most importantly, we had the same core ethics and the same core values. So we believed in the same things. We believed in treating people fairly. We believed in making sure that the composers and musicians were our partners rather than simply being people who you exploit. In fact, a music publisher, there's often a big debate about who is your customer. We always saw the customer as being the person who buys the music at the end result. We'd always see our musicians and our composers as being our business partners. So many music companies lost sight of that and they spend all their marketing and their time 
focused on trying to attract new talent to come and join them that they forget who their customer is. And ultimately, as a business or as a musician, you've got to be customer focused. You've got to listen to the feedback that comes through the customers. You've got to anticipate what the customer is going to want in the future. And that will drive a lot of your actions. And managing that in the creative process was something that two of us just understood because we've both been through creative tech businesses and understood how you've got to focus on the customer and you have to take people on the journey with you. So we were just new that we worked together really, really well. And I would honestly say over 20 years, I don't think we ever really had an argument. We'd have a disagreement on some things where we didn't agree on something. But normally when that happened, you would go, why have you got a problem with this? And you'd listen to the other person because you knew there was something there that they didn't feel was right. And so understanding it was really, really important because the way I was thinking or the way he was thinking meant that we'd miss something because why would the other person have a problem with this? So we managed to like talk our way through most of those things, which I think is a very, very good basis for any founder relationship. How you find a co-founder who has such complementary skills who you work with isn't easy if you've got a business idea and you're a single founder. But it's no different to building a management team or bringing anything in later in in the business. You probably won't find it in one person, but you'll find it in several people. And as the team grew, you know, we soon realized that actually we needed people who had better hands-on tech skills. We needed people who had better hands-on sales skills. We needed people who had better hands-on all sorts of different things. And you bring those people into the team and build them up. And quite quickly, it ceased being the Robert and Andrew show because everybody else we brought in came with a similar culture, a similar belief, because that was so important rather than the actual technical abilities. Uh, would they fit into the organization? Would they fit in with our customers who are very creative? Would they fit in with our composers and musicians who are also very creative? No, I like that. And it seems if you guys were disagreeing and you were kind of pondering, well, why is he saying that? It seems you had built up the trust that, oh, wait, I know this person. I know they're generally intelligent and da 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 so we may disagree, but okay, since I know the body of work here, there has to be something that maybe I'm not seeing. It seems like that trust you built enabled you to be able to go, whoa, when you disagree that like, oh, why is there a difference of opinion in that? That's kind of cool. I like that. And yeah, it is difficult to find that in a partnership. But as you said, if you're hiring people and bringing people into the environment for the right reasons, for the culture and for the ability to deliver on the customer promise that value prop yeah i mean should be a little bit more straightforward we always used to have a saying actually and uh this is one thing actually andrew and i i think still disagree on who said that first andrew claims it's him so i'll give him the credit for it but it's lost in such the annuals of time it's become a part of my psyche as well and that was if we interviewed somebody together we would always have one person doing the interview and the other one was just sitting there listening and noting whether somebody used the word passion in the interview. Because it's really difficult to throw the word passion in in a conversation in the right context and to keep all your faculties going in a straight way. You can very quickly show when somebody's faking passion. If they can demonstrate they've got the ability to be passionate about something, they would connect with other people in the organization. So it could be a tech guy might be really passionate about servicing his car it might be the most boring thing in the world to somebody else but at least he's got the ability to be passionate about something and it doesn't matter what it was but as long as they could be passionate about something they were going to fit in with the culture of the organization because then you could motivate them you could 
uh, incentivize them, and they'd inspire other people in the organization. It is funny, your example of the car. There are so many different ways, but in the end, it's sort of that push to go a little bit further than just enough to explore these, you know, the sublime in that basic concept. And then if you find people who can do that, you can find their connecting points. And that's probably key as an investor. You probably find the same. If you're investing in a business, if you see the founders and you see the people that they're building around them have got that passion, then they're going to succeed because whatever barriers get thrown in them in the way, if they're passionate, they'll find a way around it. You know, they won't necessarily go down the path that they think they're going down. But if they're creative enough and they're passionate enough, they're going to find ways around that barrier to still achieve the ultimate goal. You need in any founder for the business because there's going to be days when you just want to give up. And I don't know how a single founder can do it because I would have given up so many times, as would Andrew. But having two founders makes it so much easier because if one's down, the other one can just remind them, this is why we're doing it. Just stick it out for a few more days. We're going to survive this. We got down to 200 euro, the 200 pounds that's sitting in our bank account at one stage. And we were like, that's it. I can't put any more money in. I've put all my savings in. And it's like, yeah, I've done the same. It's like, okay, we're going to get through this. We'll find a way. And we survived. And uh, I think every, every successful business that's been bootstrapped will remember those days very, very well. And if you go the venture capital route, you miss out on all that stuff where actually it's really, really important because it does really get you, force you to get to understand every aspect of the business. Having talked with a lot of entrepreneurs, it's funny, the bootstrapped entrepreneurs, it is those like, how were you able to figure out the puzzle of X, usually money, like, okay, I had no money and I had 12 hours before payroll or you know, whatever the case maybe where then the VC backed folks tend to be more like, oh yeah, it was so much stress getting that investment. And it's like, yes, that is stressful, but <laughs> it's not sustained for five years like that. Yeah. yeah. It's like I remember the day where my company, we payroll was larger than the cash reserve balance on the credit card I had. <laughs> and I was just like my safety net's gone. <laughs> we have to work. <laughs> this has to work. <laughs> I can no longer use the magic credit card. In hindsight, it's a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, when you that's, that's why I don't really fancy doing another bootstrap startup myself. Thanks very much. It was great at the time. And with hindsight, you can look and laugh about it. But at the time, it's, uh, it's a lot of stress and it's a lot of pressure. But you get, you get through it. You do, definitely. Well, what's something... Given your experience here, what helped you the most to be an entrepreneur? Something you had read, your background, you know, what do you think helped you improve your ability to be an entrepreneur the most? I think I've got to give my father a huge amount of credit, actually, because he was always a bootstrapped entrepreneur, struggled all his life to get a business beyond that startup phase. And he was a huge influence on me saying, don't do the same thing I did. He said, you've got the opportunity to get an education. And he made a lot of sacrifices to make sure I got a good education. And he said, then you can dream bigger, you can achieve bigger. But if you haven't got the education, A, you don't have the contacts to be able to raise money, you don't have the knowledge. And he said, you go get an education, go and get some experience first. And then when you do that, when you do your entrepreneurial thing, if that's the route you want to go down, because you don't have to go down that route, you can choose the right opportunity when it comes up and you can 
have the skills to deliver rather than learning on the journey. And I think that for a lot of entrepreneurs, unless they have a very good mentor, it's a really hard process because how do you take a small business and turn it into a mid-sized business? Those transition points, I think it is, it's hard enough just to rub two sticks together and get some sparks to start a flame. But then to see how some of these things keep going and how you get that complexity. I love how you used your partnership. It's difficult. Given that, you know, you've had wonderful exit, you know, the classic entrepreneurial success here. You're living in a really nice part of the world. Yeah. How do you define success for yourself now? What's your way about defining it? Difficult questions I think I struggled with when we first sold the business because I'd achieved everything I'd set out to do. It was like not only achieved it, but it was probably 10 times bigger than you'd set the goals in the first place. So we ended up in a place that we didn't even aim to go to. We could have carried on running the business for a long, long time, but the opportunity just came up and the timing was right as well, I think, for us to exit. I think now I get more satisfaction from either helping businesses or things in the non-business space. I think you look at all the things going around the world at the moment, like climate change and the way that society is. There's so many things in the world that need change. I think my real focus is going to be on something which is not business goal orientated. I think it's probably going to be somewhere in doing something for society or planet or something but i'm very much keeping my powder dry to a large degree because if you get sucked into that sort of thing it will become a full-time function i'm not saying i don't want to do it as a full-time function i'm simply saying i want to do the right thing because the things you're looking at are so big that actually you could waste an awful lot of time and all you'll do is just make one tiny little scratch of a change on something. It has to be the sort of thing where actually you could make a bit of change in something significant, but what that opportunity is. So I'm looking at quite a few philanthropic projects and actually I thought I'd be using my cash to do that. It's amazing how many things you look at that you go, there's a lot of people out there who are billionaires who have an awful lot of cash trying to do these sorts of things, but they don't have the people that they can trust to do those projects. And each of those sorts of people I've bumped into have all gone, hey, I'd love you to come and run this project for me. And no, you don't have to worry about putting your own cash in because I trust you that you would do it because you're not doing it for the cash. But then where do you start? And I haven't found the right one so far because they've all been other people's projects rather than being my project. So. My real focus the last couple of years has been we bought a property here and it's been renovating the property. Do you know what? That's kept me satisfied during the COVID stuff and I've kind of enjoyed doing renovation and that sort of stuff. But I'll find another I'll find another adventure. But I'm not desperate to go chasing after. I'm just enjoying life at the moment. No, I really appreciate you coming here on the show today. It's always great to talk to someone else here on the Coast of the Soul. But just, you know, your journey was really cool and there's I think a lot that the audience will be able to pull out of that and reflect on how they're looking at it and yeah, where they're pulling their own efforts towards. So thank you very much for coming. Well, hopefully there's something there that they can tag on to. I mean, the reality is every journey is completely different. So there isn't one answer fits all. But if there's just little bits is where somebody realizes that they can't do everything themselves, that's okay. And I think once you acknowledge that, then your business is going to grow beyond uh, 
a small business phase because you keep trying to do everything yourself. All you do is give yourself a heart attack and die because you can't. There aren't just enough hours in the day to do it. Busy entrepreneurs are dangerous entrepreneurs. Okay, thank you very much. I really enjoy talking with Robert. It's a lot of fun to talk with successful entrepreneurs, obviously. <laughs> That's kind of what I do all the time. But what I found interesting is just how he feels he's moved on into this investor role and what's important to him as an investor. There was a lot we could learn from his journey, especially you know with the success Audio Network has had and still is having, but his success in selling it, looking at the reasons why he took on external investment. I think this is something I mentioned before the show began, and then we talked a little bit into the interview, but a lot of you out there are in these transition points where you're finding growth and you're trying to debate, do you take on external money? And I think Robert's positioning of the potential growth that was achievable with the extra money and how that drove a lot of his decision-making was worthwhile to think about. Also, just the value of his partnership. You could say he was lucky he had worked with his partner beforehand. They had had a good working chemistry before they started this company. But the reality is the amount of work he talked about putting in to have that partnership friendship is something of value. So as you go about looking at your own business, looking at how you're growing your partnerships, your relationships, your growth patterns, take into consideration sort of what you're willing to do to build these relationships to allow you to continue the growth. Just a little bit of fun. I really, really did enjoy talking to someone who is literally just about, for those of us who are not in the US, just about 40 kilometers away from me, those of us who are American and only think in miles, about 20, 25 miles down the coast. Everyone, go check out his LinkedIn. It's always nice, someone who's not really selling anything. But if you think you have something of value to talk to him about, please go check out his LinkedIn and reach out there. We'll have that in the show notes. And please come to beyond8figures.com, sign up for the newsletter so you can find out other cool entrepreneurs were coming on the show, and we'll give you all the heads up on it. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you have a wonderful day and I can't wait to talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Beyond A Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.